right. Welcome to another episode of The Brew Deck, starting right now. I'm your host, Toby Tucker. We all know here, well, maybe some people don't know, but I am based in Texas, and it is, uh, it's cold right now. But the old, there's the old saying that if you don't like the weather in Texas, just wait a day. Well, it's a real indication of when the holidays are right around the corner when it starts getting cold. And here it's probably 45 degrees, which I know for a lot of northerners, 45 degrees is like shorts weather. But typically down here, there's a trigger that goes off in my brain. Let me know that it's holiday season. The, the other indication is when the elf on the shelf mysteriously shows up, scaring the crap out of me somewhere in the house. And for those parents, they know what the elf in the shelf is. So well, the uh, elf in the shelf hasn't showed up yet, but all day I felt like a kid who can't sleep on Christmas Eve because uh, I have a very special guest today. I want to welcome Bart Whipple, assistant brewmaster, supply chain manager, brewing and raw materials at the one and only Sierra Nevada. Bart, how's it going, buddy? Very good, Toby. How about yourself? Fantastic. I got to say, I'm super impressed with whoever put this interview together. Very uh, excited to have you and and kind of like a kid in a candy store here. So thanks for joining us. Oh, anytime. So I don't really need to say a whole lot about Sierra Nevada and kind of the the scene and who they are. I think most of our listeners know of Sierra Nevada and probably got into the craft beer scene as far as enjoying a beverage or two, specifically on the pale ale. But you guys have been around a long time and really, really seen the ups and downs of the craft movement, if you will. But tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got into brewing with and how you arrived to work for Sierra Nevada. Well, I've always had a keen interest in beer, starting from when I was young and stealing beers out of my dad's refrigerator through, I can say this now because of the statute of limitations is gone through high school and Got into trying different beers that were available back then, which obviously there, there weren't the choices nowadays, but always have liked beer. I wasn't doing anything around the time that I was looking for a job and happened to see Sierra Nevada was looking for someone to work in the bottle shop and do deliveries. So that was my first job at Sierra. I think they hired me because I was fairly clean cut and looked like I fit in. And so I started doing that. And then a year later, had the opportunity to begin brewing and learning more about how beer is made. Everything that I could learn about beer, I I tried to do when I started brewing. And I did that for about 27 years or so. And just recently moved over into the supply chain to buy the ingredients now. So if I can do the math here, and I I'm not very good at math, so it's almost 30 years. Oh, I I left out a few things. I'm running up on about 36 years here come April. Gosh, gosh, fantastic. And are you still, you you mentioned fairly clean cut. Are you still Uh, fairly clean cut? Yeah, for the most part, yeah. (laughs) Oh, this COVID thing just, uh, it's like everybody, you know, I forget where my razor is and, you know, half the time just don't get out of my underwear. That's... Yeah, I, I come into the office most every day, so I have to look somewhat presentable, but uh, <laughs> I'm not as uh, focused on my appearances, shall we say. We don't yeah. have visitors, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, uh, it, again, fantastic to talk to you, and you, you've been around Sierra for quite some time, and you and I have ran into each other on several occasions. This has been a while, but as the move from 
the brewery operation side to the raw ingredients. You know, do you find yourself going out and, and sourcing ingredients and then, you know, kind of showing them to your brewers, say, here's what we're working with. And you kind of got mixed emotions, whether they like your decision or not. I've bought brewing raw materials for many years as part of my duties. Now, being in the supply chain role, having to present those to people that are actually using them, they like to blame the sources of uh, brew house problems on the raw materials. <laughs> not on their screw-ups, huh? <clears throat> not, not on equipment <laughs> uh, problems or other things. So I deal with that uh, quite often. So you're like quickly speed walking through the, uh, the brewery to go to your office every day? Yes. <laughs> well. We haven't had yeah. that problem, so it's all good. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I don't want to pat our own backs here. I think one of the reasons you probably guys have you guys have probably not have a whole lot of problems is because we like to think it's because we are one of your chosen suppliers of barley malt, oat malt, and unmalted wheat. Again, you probably are utilizing several other suppliers, and for that, we appreciate y'all's business. I've heard some stories, and this could be just hearsay here, but you're sort of like a bloodhound when it comes to determining malt quality, specifically like, you know, opening up a rail car and using your senses and stuff like this. Tell me what, what's going on when you're opening up. Obviously, I, let me back up. You guys, for a lot of material, take rail cars, large, large quantities. A, yeah. a lot of folks on the craft side that we also provide ingredients to, you know, we're doing a pallet or two at a time of 50, 55 pound sacks. But tell me about this ability you have that I heard of to, to determine quality just by opening a rail car and looking at it? Well, when you get up on a rail car and you're opening that top hatch, when you get this big puff of aroma coming out of the nice maltiness of it, you can look and just the smell will tell you a lot. We have opened some rail cars and they had gotten wet for some reason on the way and you could immediately just smell that it's not how it should be, you know, with a little bit of mustiness. With that aroma factor and then grabbing some and having a chew, getting all those flavors along with that aroma, I mean, you, you can just tell when something is, is nice and when something is a little bit off. At least I do. Right. Now, when you're doing that, are your senses, quote unquote, the lab or do you guys actually take a piece of that delivery and do some quick tests on it before accepting the load? We do a lot of just the organoleptic uh, chewing. We try to take it into our sensory department and, you know, have more eyes and mouths on it just to get more people involved. I'm comfortable with what I what I know and, and find, but it's always good to get other opinions. So we do that. We will do Congress mashes on occasion just to, especially during the change of uh, crop years. And we do a lot of you know, inspection, not so much where we're taking it and running lab tests on it. We, we don't really do that. So you, you spend, you obviously have a lot of faith on the analysis that's coming from the maltsters to specifically talk about the attributes of the malt that's being sent to you, right? Yes. We, do, we look at every analysis for every piece of malt that comes in. And if we look at that and find that we might not agree or something seems to be a little bit off, we'll do a deep dive then. But, okay. uh, you know, you have to trust your suppliers to do what they're doing and to feed you the numbers. If you don't trust your suppliers, you should probably not use them. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. So 
And as far as a lot smaller scale for some of the, you know, the customer base that we have and others that are, you know, maybe brewing on a three, five or 10 barrel system that, that deal in those 25 kg bags, what would you suggest to them? Or do you have any pointers as far as inbounding raw materials, specifically on the, the grain and barley malt side as they, as they look and chew and feel, would, would you say that it should be similar on, on a smaller scale for them too? Oh, yeah, it truly is. I mean, when you pop open a bag, you know, you should be smelling and just looking at it, just the brightness, color of the malt. Is it what you're expecting? You smell or see anything off, but it doesn't matter what size of package it comes in. You should be able to inspect it organoleptically anytime. You know, if you want to take it then to the lab to do other things, then that's certainly something that can be done as well. So going back to kind of that waft of the malt when you open up uh, the, the rail car. Is there a specific malt that you just absolutely love taking a whiff of or, or doing a chew test on? I know for me, I specifically, I, you know, I love specific, you know, certain crystal malts. It's almost like, you know, I could put it in a bowl and pour some milk on there and have a nice breakfast. But is there something that stands out for you? Well, for me, as far as a pale malt, I, I really like uh, Maris Otter. Or whatever it is we don't get rail cars of it, but we have gotten totes and bags. And I just I like floor malt, the smell, the flavor. That's one of my favorites. The crystal malts too, as you say, you know, chewing those and the nutty berry flavors that you get, those are very nice as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. From Sierra Nevada's perspective over the past forty years, how has malt quality and consistency changed that you've seen, especially here in North America? Well, back when I first started brewing, we were getting Great Western malt out of Los Angeles, which is very far away from the growing area, as everyone should know. And I think the, the biggest change is new technology, moving malt houses closer to where things are grown and the consistency of, well, more technology helps. You know, it's less hands-on, which in some respects is maybe not good, but the consistency is much better with like the larger, more modern malt houses for sure. Yeah, no, I I would agree. I've seen in in my slim eight years, I've seen quite a a bit change. You've gotten... I'm assuming you've gotten pretty hands-on and, and been able to go and travel and kind of seen the, the terroir, if you will, and kind of run your hands through the, the barley that you guys as a, as a brewery will ultimately be using. Do you have any fond memories or experiences of somewhere in particular that you've been, that you've been able to walk the ground and, and, and see the product actually coming out of the ground? Anytime you can get out in the field and, and walk barley, it's just a neat thing. I just to see the heads growing and to know that, okay, this field will be in what we're going to brew with. Those are kind of magical moments, I guess. They're kind of fun just to see your raw material outgrowing. Yeah, I know. I, I 100% agree. Are you guys doing anything interesting as far as, you know, maybe on a small scale or, um, you know, pilot batches that you guys are pretty excited about? We're always have something in the pipeline there somewhere. We're actually focusing a lot right now on a non-beer thing, which is probably don't want to talk about here. But yeah, kombucha, we're looking into things like that and some other beyond beer projects. But as far as beers, we're churning out all kinds of prototypes. 
it takes us a long time to start a project, brew all the different iterations of it until we think it's ready to go. So I say we got a full pipeline. It's just now choosing what our sales and marketing team would like to push forward with. That's great. Jumping back over to the malt side, you guys made the decision to go east, if you will, in a, in a big way from Chico out to North Carolina. When you look at consistency as far as the, the raw materials, was it important for you guys to utilize the same suppliers, albeit it may be you know a bit further from your new facility or how much complications or challenge did you have keeping consistency of product at both breweries? And, and you know, I may be speaking out of some, maybe you guys do different beers at each, each facility. Well, we do try to maintain consistency with all of our raw materials for brewing. We use the same malts. We use the same hops. We try to coordinate between breweries, which lots of hops and what malts are in beers so that we do maintain a consistency. And, you know, it's a bit of a juggle sometimes, but that is something we really try to focus on. Yeah, it seems like you said a bit a, a juggling act and definitely uh, quite a bit of communication probably needs to happen. A lot of communication. It's very hard to work with someone 3,000 miles away and three hours difference. So it's a lot of talking on Teams meetings or by the phone or However, we can talk just because you can't walk across the hallway and chat people up. Yeah, yeah absolutely. One of the things that, that's always stood out to me and I think our listeners as well is Sierra Nevada leadership has always been hands-on. Ken Grossman seems to be always involved in, in anything and everything Sierra Nevada and all of the leadership that I've had the opportunity to meet is the same way. You know, one of the things that I've always been impressed with in my time spent with dealing with you guys is the contribution made to several different community organizations and then really stepping up in the brewing world for the needs of disasters, et cetera, specifically the wildfires out in California that we were faced with, specifically at Paradise, California, was right next to, to you guys in Chico, hit really hard by the campfire. You know, Sierra Nevada quickly mobilized the craft brewing community to help raise money for the victims of that fire. You know, I'm sure you, you remember that well. Can you tell us a little yes, bit I more do. about that program? That was an amazing thing to happen. We were here. The town was basically burned off the map. And we had people that lived up there who had lost everything as well. And it was just a terrible time. As people started collecting their senses, Ken opened up his store to give away clothing to people who basically ran away with what was on their back. And I mean, he just, he cooked, uh, had the pub fire up to cook meals for people who had nowhere to go. And that part was amazing. And then he came up with an idea. We thought we would brew a beer and sell it and donate the proceeds. And that started out locally a little bit. And then suppliers started contacting us, other breweries that wanted to help. And it just turned into a huge relief effort that was, I don't know, it boggles my mind. It was something special. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't want to speak out of terms, but I think it ultimately raised more than $15 million 
that was in combination. It, I should back up here, but the folks at Sierra Nevada, you guys actually came up with an idea to help the rest of the brewers in North America also become involved by brewing a beer and then using the proceeds to go back towards the relief. And I think there was more than 1,500 breweries across U.S. and Canada, I believe, that uh, participated in this program. So it was, and it was we really, had really cool. interest from outside the country, which was phenomenal. Yeah, as I said, it was intended to start just us. And then as more people heard about it and wanted to help, it exploded into this thing. And suppliers like yourselves, Country Malt, Great Western stepped in to donate raw materials for this and it just kept on building and turned into what it was which was something amazing yeah very very impressive that a, a brewery of your size it really gets in and, and uh assist when they need to so it's really really cool and, and ultimately bart it, it ended up with some assistance again in the australian wildfires as well i think they did something similar in uh, in australia with uh, yeah. a relief beer Yes, they did. It was kind of nice to see that kind of camaraderie jump across the ocean and, you know, help those folks too. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Along the lines of just kind of commitment and kind of what you guys do for the environment, tell me a little bit more about Sierra Nevada's commitment to environmental sustainability. I've heard a lot about it. Well, that's one of our key focuses to make great beer, but to have a small environmental footprint as we can. We've installed solar panels, which at one point were the largest private solar panel facility in California. But those rascals at Google uh, didn't like that, so they did more. (laughs) And then we were demoing hydrogen fuel cells for supplemental power. And those Worked, but not as well as we were hoping. So we switched to micro turbines and we tried to run those off of waste or generated gas from our water treatment plant that gave off, you know, burnable gas. So we were capturing that and trying to use it. We reclaim heat wherever we can to preheat water. Recycling, we are working toward a zero having zero waste to go to landfill. We're very close. We look everywhere we can to reduce, you know, things that can't be reused, which is kind of why we went to rail cars. It's better to move one rail car of malt than three or four truckloads, get those things off the road and use less petroleum. So that is a big focus about everything we do. That's really awesome. Really awesome the work you guys are doing. And and I'm obviously curious of how that plays out in some of those initiatives. That's great. Switching gears here a little bit, hazy little thing. Let's talk about that for a minute. So back when Cascade hops were somewhat new to the market, Sierra Nevada took the lead on making a hop forward pale ale that became the the I would say the benchmark for for paleos for many years and still to this day. When hazies came into play. You guys did a ton of research to determine the ingredients and recipes for the beer now known as Hazy Little Thing. Obviously, don't expect you to give away any secrets here, but can you talk about the oat malt factor and kind of what it does for that beer on turbidity and and mouthfeel, et cetera? Sure. When Hazy's first came out as a style, we kind of 
turned our backs on them. You know, we didn't do that hazy of a beer except for a Weiss beer or something. We started to look into it, and the biggest component was how to create a stable haze, not just blow a bunch of yeast in or whatever. So we started looking at oat malt, wheat malt, all these things that we knew we could get haze with, reached out to Country Malt for some oats to start playing with. We really have dug into the haze component with our R&D lab, and we still continue to do so. We don't know any, well, we know something, but we don't know everything that we want to know there. But those oats are a good part of that haze and a mouthfeel that you know, is great with that style of beer. We still have a lot of work to do. I don't really like to talk too much about it just because we're in the midst of our studies still, but uh, we do have a few secrets we don't want to give away. But, uh, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I don't blame it, uh, you. It, the oats do provide that nice mouthfeel in the beer, though, just softness and a nice mouthfeel. It is a, it's a fantastic beer. You guys are, Thank whatever you. you're doing, is you're doing a good job. I don't know if it needs a whole lot of tweaking, but uh, I'll leave that up oh, to you, the professional. We always think it does, so. Right. Speaking of hazies, kind of on the topic of trends, I know when the hazies hit, it was just a, an explosion. You know, of, I got to make one, I got to make one, got to drink one, got to have one. What do you think the next big trend will be in the beer world? Quite honestly, I think session beers are there's already kind of a lean that way i think that folks nowadays want to drink something they can have a few of with friends and not get completely obliterated after drinking two with you know the hot flavor but not a lot of the bitterness yeah i don't disagree you know there's along the same lines there's some breweries out there that are making impeccable non-alcoholic beers or very, very session, you know, sessionable low alcohol beers that will stand up against many of the four or five, you know, 6% beers. There's some very talented people out there doing some great things. Yeah. Non-alcohol, I think is another one that's on the rise. I agree. I agree. Well, I know you've got a extremely tough job. We talked a little bit about kind of your day before, uh, before you came on, uh, on the show here, but You've got a lot of tough choices you make every day, but what about the choices when it comes to what beer you're drinking? You know, pint, can, bottle, what do you, what's your go-to? What are you enjoying right now for personal or favorite beer, beer style? Wow. That's like asking me who my favorite child is. Uh, <laughs> I like a lot of, a lot of different beers. Uh, I was just trying a table beer that we're playing with and I don't know. I've, I'd have to say right now, I'm mostly enjoying sours and dark beers. Might be sacrilegious to say this. Uh, I'm kind of over IPAs right now, looking at barrel age and just some other nice styles that I didn't pay attention to for a while. It is that time of the year for the barrel aged. I am a fan myself. So I don't know when this thing will air for the general audience, but it I was told that Ken Grossman has a birthday coming up here in November and that we shall cheers for his birthday. I don't have a, a beer with me, but you can believe uh, after this call, I'm going to go get one. But we can throw a cheers up for Mr. Ken Grossman. 
of Sierra yep. Nevada. I have to give him a shout out and a you know a pre happy birthday. Yeah, absolutely. There we go. Cheers. Bart, hey, thanks so much for for coming on with us. Of note, Dustin Camphouse from uh, Great Western Malting out in Pocatello, who you may have met. He's uh, going to be the next guest on the podcast. And he's going to tell us about his work specifically with growers and the intake of grain into the malt house. So they are giving you a big hello from the crew up there. And they're looking forward to to having you up and doing some more of that walking around in, in the in the fields and, and hosting you up there at Great Western Malting. Well, back at him. I hope to get up there in the coming year and resume our visits and wave goodbye to this year for sure. Oh, I'm ready for that. Yeah. All right, Bart, thanks so much for, for joining us. It's been a, a real pleasure chatting with you and I hope you have a, a fantastic rest of the week and I, I look forward to uh, chatting with you here coming uh, sooner rather than later and tell the crew up at Sierra, uh, Sierra Nevada we said hello and I appreciate y'all's business. Will do. You take care. Thanks, Bart. field to talk with Dustin Camphouse, Greenfield representative for Great Western Malting in beautiful Pocatello, Idaho. And Dustin, can you tell us what your actual title is and what that entails? So my actual title is field representative for Great Western Malting. And what my day-to-day duties are work with local growers in contracting barley and wheat on behalf of Great Western to be malted. And that's the day-to-day. And then um, there's a little bit of trucking logistics, making sure the malt plants are fed with trucks and or rail cars if we're going into Vancouver. Right. So the I mean, a couple of times I've been up there, primarily what you know I've gotten is you're the guy that gets out in the trucks and peruses all over, primarily Idaho, talking to the farmers and looking to see how far along their barley crops are looking. And basically, you're the one that goes out and talks to the farmers and figures out how far the barley crops are along and then uh, coordinates like now during harvest to get that into our facilities. So, yeah, so there's uh, myself and my boss, Clay Casa, and it's pretty amazing how hands on Great Western actually is with that. We like to monitor the crop from the time it's sown all the way till it's harvested. Um, it gives us an opportunity to make sure that our quality standards are being met. And if there's any uh, recommendations we can help the growers with, we can give them that. Cool. And I know that you've got a pretty, from from the time that you and I've sat down and talked in the past, because I've been up there three or four times, um, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit about your background, but I think it's it's pretty interesting. So how, how did you start working in the barley industry, the malt industry? Like, how did that whole thing kind of come to be? Yeah, it was kind of just happenstance. My wife's uncle told me about a position within AB, and um, it was just supposed to be a seasonal position. So I started at the seed plant where um, they bring in generational seed and clean it, treat it, and send it back out to their own farmers. So that's where I started at was in a a seed facility. From there, I was offered a full-time position at one of their elevators that handles... I don't know, 100,000, well, the size of it's 100,000 metric tons. So it's a huge facility, um, and I worked there for out in the elevator for two or three years, and then I went into the lab, and that was 
probably where I spent the majority of my time and gave me some really cool opportunities. So in the lab, you check quality on every truck and rail car that was shipped in or out. That afforded me the opportunity to go and work in the other bush facilities across North Dakota and Montana. And then from there, I went into a malt plant. So at AB's malt plant, I worked in there for, I don't know, two or three years as a operator. And um, just overseeing day-to-day operations of malting. So know how to malt barley, know how to put it in the ground and grow it. And it's, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a great experience. And then um, oh, I, I really wanted to get back out into the field and be with the farmers more. Being inside the malt plant is cool. There's a lot of technology and cool things that go on inside a malt plant. But I really wanted to be back with the growers. So then, um, then the Great Western position came available and here I am. That's awesome. So, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things when I was starting out, um, what we get you to like, talk a little bit more about is that I didn't really understand all the steps. And you clearly understand all the steps from, you know, sowing the seed to malting the barley and getting it out on the trucks to, you know, uh, siloed customers to, you know, our bagging lines out in Vancouver. One of the things that I think I was confused on when I first started, because uh, I'm a big dum-dum, is that I didn't realize what an elevator was. And so, like, I literally had this picture of, like, an elevator shaft and then, like, just a bunch of grain just stuffed in. And then you would press a button, like, you'd go up to a floor and that would just drop the barley down. But I don't think that's accurate. So can you kind of go into a little bit of detail of what an elevator looks like, how it operates? Because that's the big form of storage out in the fields to create consistency with the malt throughout the blend. Is that correct? So Clay and I come up with a production forecast for the year. So we're going to need X amount of different varieties and we'll put those volumes together. And then we try to make sure that those varieties are conducive to different growing regions, to their environments. We don't want to put a variety that isn't going to perform well for the farmer somewhere. So that's that's kind of where we start is with that. And then we place them around with the different farmers so they have success and want to keep growing for us. So how many how many growing regions are you looking at at the same time? I mean, Great Western, I know primarily, you know, the, we're in Idaho, Washington, a little bit in Oregon. But are there more than that? Yeah, we have um, we have a little bit in southern and southwest and northwest Montana. So there's a little bit grown out there. Oregon, Washington, a little bit across the border at California there and a really good fall barley program coming along out in central Oregon hugely diverse growing areas and so what that allows us to do is it's kind of the old adage don't put all your eggs in one basket so um, if there's a natural disaster or a crop failure in one region the other region can usually handle the excess sorry to interrupt uh, i just wanted to get a clarification of you know what that region looked like before uh for the for the listener yeah and then um back to the elevator deal so i guess it's uh jargon it's industry jargon so Anytime you jump into a new industry, there's words, certain words that people use. So a better word to identify an elevator would probably be silos, like most people call grain storage silos. So here in East Idaho, we lease about 10, I think, 10 different silo facilities to accommodate our grain production. And um, the reason we call them elevators is because the mode of transportation inside those facilities are called bucket elevators. And there will be a drag or a conveyor that takes the barley into the bin or out of the bin. But to, to get the elevation to put it on top of the silos, they use bucket elevators. And that's where the term elevators comes from. 
Just picture silos, just grain silos, and then uh, industry jargon is elevators. Cool. So those are sort of spread out, storing all the barley that's come off the field that year as it's getting ready to move into the mall houses, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. So then you said from from there, you sort of went into the lab over at AB. So what sort of day-to-day operations was the lab like? That was a whole different beast. That was something I was not prepared for. So <laughs> on a typical day, you would check quality on about 60 to 80 inbound trucks and 12 to 24 outbound rail cars. And for raw barley quality, we're looking at protein, moisture, plumps, thins, and germinative capacity. So in the malting industry, you need your barley or wheat to grow. So it's got to germinate or it doesn't work for us. So you just check inbound quality, outbound quality, and take a sample from each of those and germinate it and make sure it grows. And Well, I was going to say, so when, you, when you're pulling that in and you're checking all the specs and stuff like that, and maybe we should talk about this a little bit more when we talk about Great Western, but sort of in that lab period, if you get that, it's not up to spec, it's not doing what it needs to do, do you just kick it right back out? Yeah, yeah. There's less tolerance for poor performing germinative capacity than there is anything else. It has to grow. We have to be able to turn those proteins and starches into fermentable sugars or it doesn't work for the malting industry. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. My, I, I actually worked in the malt house at AB. So that's okay, where all of that come from. So that had to be wild. I mean, you know, how many, how many malt houses does AB have stretched across the U.S.? I mean, are they primarily, I've seen the big one, like if I'm driving up uh, in eastern Idaho, up from Salt Lake, you can see the big one on the side of the road. Um, how many do they have spread out? Globally, I don't have a clue. In the yeah. U.S., I believe there's four. Oh, yeah, that's nuts. I think, you know, to put that in perspective, Great Western has two. Two in the U.S. and yeah, yeah. and then five in Canada with the sister company. But yeah, probably the craziest thing to me is the the volumes that these facilities use. So we have one in Pocatello that's Great Western, and then two AB facilities in Idaho Falls. When you add all those up, they're using oh, what is it, three a million metric tons, or producing a million metric tons of malt a year. I mean, it's crazy how much volume of barley goes through East Idaho. Do we know in the U.S. alone how many million metric tons of barley for malting are grown? Oh, wow. It's probably close to four or five million. Yeah, that was the number that I had heard was was roughly between four and five. And then if you get up into Canada, it's much, much larger. So I I think it's kind of cool to know that like in the U.S., we've got our own little isolated area for barley growing. And it really feeds from what I understand all back into primarily the U.S., as opposed to using some of the Canadian barley, which can be more commodities driven. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So from there, let's let's talk a little bit about the supply chain going up. So um, I know I've been out there three or four times meeting some of the growers. So the growers, as you said, are spread out amongst those five or six states. What's the day to day sort of relationship that you've got with those farmers? We have growers that have grown barley for Great Western since the 70s or maybe even the 60s. Then you have generational farms who just continue to grow barley. My predecessor, Randy Nyworth, had established just these amazing relationships with these growers. It's really a tight-knit community when it comes to malting barley. It's really similar to the craft beer scene. You know, craft brewers geek out about making beer. Great Western malsters geek out about making malt. And I geek out about getting barley in the ground and so do the growers. Like, yes, it's just who we are and what we enjoy to do. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And I've gotten to meet some of the uh, farmers, too. And um, as a city kid, I had no idea the technical prowess, the size of these farms alone up in eastern Idaho that I've, I've visited. And the barley up there doing crop rotation. So essentially, when they started off I and mean, they're looking pre-sowing, what are they doing to the soil? What are they, you know, what are their plans going into the growing season? How, what, what is that? Can you walk me through that? Yeah, so some of our farmers in the lower elevations plant what we call winter barley. It's actually planted in the fall. And a lot of the farmers are going to kind of a no-till or minimal-till operation. They're disturbing the soil less and less, and that helps retain moisture in the ground. So our farmers are really good about uh, rotating different crops. So one crop isn't mining all the nutrients out of the soil. With the crop rotations, they're not growing barley in the same fields all the time. The way it was explained to one of the farmers I talked to was that they primarily do three crops up there, right? So they do potatoes because Idaho, barley, and then canola plant are their big three. Is that right? Yeah. So here in East Idaho, we have um, potatoes and grain is the two big ones. And then alfalfa is another big one. And the nice thing about growing barley in this area uh, if they're following potatoes or an alfalfa field, those are both nitrogen-fixing plants or crops. So then if they come in and plant barley after either of those two crops, it's less manufactured fertilizer that they have to put on their fields. Oh, cool. So basically, they you know they get it going. They, they pick the fields based off what the nitrogen content of the soil is, and then it's time to plant. So how does that differ based on the season? Right now, the guys that are fall planting, they'll irrigate the ground, get some moisture in it. And then if they're uh, no-till operation, they'll just take their no-till planting machine or no-till drill, drill right into the previous crops. So usually that's the grain-on-grain grain guys. If they're a minimal till operation, they'll have to run a seedbed maker or a disc, something lightly to tear up the ground and incorporate the previous crop a little bit. And then they'll do their fall planted stuff. The spring planted stuff, it's extremely similar. Everybody does what they call fall groundwork. So again, they'll incorporate the previous crop and then just let that field sit until the weather starts to break in March or April. And then they'll come in and there's different implements they can use to break up the ground because after they've worked it once and it's been snowed on and it melts, there's kind of a crust to the ground. Mm -hmm. So they kind of have to break that up and then they can go ahead and plant again. I know that using doing winter malt varieties, it's newer for us to do on a large scale formation. How did the farmers respond to that? Were they really happy so that they could be able to push and use the fields in the winter as well? Yeah, so the nice thing about our winter barley program is it actually it comes back to that sustainability piece. The fall planted grain is planted and it starts to come up and then that crop actually gets to utilize some of the snow moisture the following year. So when it comes out of the ground next year and it starts to warm up, it's it's just free moisture. It's less pumping costs out of our aquifer or our canal systems. I guess that gets into we're sort of at planting and now we're into that growing season. You know, you kind of explained how the winter malt sits up there, that crust forms, that snowpack hits and, and things are sort of happening underground. How does that differ from like a traditional spring crop? What is that? I mean, what does that growing season look like? So the, the growing season for the fall plant and stuff puts about probably about a five or six week head start on those plants. And the farmers really like that because they can cut their fall barley beginning around the 1st of July and then just roll right into their other crops. It, it gives them kind of a break. Whereas our spring planted stuff goes in the ground the end of March and then through April, depending on the elevation and where the farmer is at. 
and harvest with it usually starts the end of July, 1st of August. And the problem that our farmers run into then is they're always busy from that time until if they're growing multiple crops, they'll have to harvest barley, dig potatoes, do third crop hay. And then if they've got sugar beets, they're digging sugar beets at the end of October, 1st of November. So the fall planted barley really provides some relief of staying busy for 10 weeks straight. It's funny you're talking about how how busy they are this time of year and going through into really, you know, toward the end of September. But one of the wildest things I think I heard and I had a conversation with, I think you and one of the farmers about was spud break. Can you kind of go into spud break up there? (laughs) Yeah. So um, it's kind of a regional thing wherever spuds are grown. A lot of times the farmers don't have enough help to harvest their potatoes. So some of that labor force actually comes from the high schools. And so growing up in this area, we'd always get two weeks off for spud break for potato harvest. <laughs> and so if you weren't working potato harvest, you're just kind of a, a lazy kid. And but yeah, a lot of the a lot of the local high schools shut down for a couple of weeks to help facilitate that labor need for potato harvest. That's in that's that's pretty incredible. I have this vision of like a million teenagers out there in those fields just picking up stuff and throwing them in there. I'm sure my dad would have rather me do that than what I actually did on spring break in high school. So very cool. So the winter crop is totally out of the ground right now, correct? Yeah, it's harvested. It's in the bins and ready to be malted. Do you have a quick rundown of sort of what that crop looked like? I mean, how are the proteins, you know, compared to last year or any, any standout information on that? So harvest this year is going really well. We've had just a spectacular window for cutting grain. I mean, we've had nice warm days. Now we're starting to pick up some afternoon thunderstorms, but nothing that will damage the crop really. As far as yield goes, there's a measurement that we call test weight. and how many pounds are going to go into that bushel of grain. And that figure is up, you know, one to two pounds across the board for everybody. It's just been a spectacular growing year for barley. And as far as the rest of the specs go, proteins look good. Plumps are really good this year. So we're going to have a lot of really nice barley to process for the next, you know, 14, 16 months. That's expected with everything coming out. So what's already come out, and this is actually probably something you can touch on a little bit, the way that the harvest works there is that essentially you move up. So if you're in eastern Idaho, the elevation changes with like almost like these, I I don't have a better way to describe it. Maybe you do like plateaus. So you harvest at the lower elevations first, and then as the season stretches on, you go up or is it vice versa? Is it down? Yeah, we go up. So we started to harvest at about, uh, I think, 3,800 feet in elevation. I think that's probably, or 4,200 feet. That's pretty close to what our Rupert Burley area is. Wow. So, yeah. To to put that kind of into perspective for people listening is that, you know, I live here in Salt Lake. We're at about 4,500. Denver, famously in the craft beer scene, mile high. So that's about 5,200 feet. Um, And I can tell you right now, uh, somebody who's hiked in the area a lot, 9,000 feet is no joke when it comes to oxygen level in the air. Does that affect the way that the crops are grown? And is that sort of when you blend it all back together or does it kind of not matter? 
Yeah, so kind of an interesting little background on that. It does matter, and it comes back to us fitting a good variety with the with the area. So we brought a variety over from France a couple years ago, and it depends on – there's a measurement called heat units that plants take up to grow, and its germinative capacity depends on the heat units it receives. So if it doesn't get enough heat units during the growing season, at harvest it's a little bit dormant, which is not all that bad. So that variety in the higher elevations, if we were to grow it up there, would be dormant when it was harvested. If we grow it down towards Burley and Rupert, it's pretty much malt ready after it's been cured in the bins. So that's just got to go in. We we're talking about all that pre-sowing prep earlier and sort of what you guys do. You're really looking at the varietal, the species to go, depending on the elevation, the area it is, and what all that soil content looks like, right? Yep, correct. Excellent. So next thing, you, you briefly touched on it. And one of the things that I did not know until I really started getting into this was how much weather patterns uh, affect what the crop yield looks like. You know, you mentioned having some sort of late afternoon thunderstorms, but I know in the past, you know, watching it globally with our partners over at at Baird's in the UK, and then looking at some of the stuff happening down in Australia or Canada or whatever, weather really affects what's happening. So can you talk about some of the pitfalls that you might have with weather? Man, weather events clear through the, the growing season can really affect the outcome of our barley crops. So early on in the springs, if we have a frost or a freezing event, that can damage the plants and slow down the growth. And usually it will kill part of the plants off. And so we have lighter yields and that, you know, that reduces our volume that we get to receive. As the growing season comes along, I've always called it the Father's Day frost. It never fails that there's a cooling event around Father's Day for whatever reason. Year in and year out, it can freeze on Father's Day. And this is a super susceptible time for our barley because it's just starting to hit a stage that we call heading out. That's when the kernels are starting to be exposed to the environment. And if those kernels freeze as they're coming out, then they usually don't fill or actually make a, a real kernel. They're just killed at that stage. So then those are the two big spring events. And then middle to end of June is usually pretty safe. We can kind of have whatever weather we want. Towards the end of June, 1st of July, uh, we usually have really good weather. So that's why the fall barley always does really well. But then as July progresses, you'll start getting afternoon thunderstorms. And for the most part, it's not too bad until we hit mid-July. But then we get to the point where some of these thunderstorms can turn into rain events or even hailstorm events and hailstorms will oh knock the kernels right off the plant on the ground and then there's no way to pick them up so again you're just losing yield and then as that comes along there's varieties that malt really really well i mean they've been bred to malt pretty much right off the combine so if that plant is mature and it gets a rainstorm those kernels are going to start growing before they're even harvested I've heard a little bit about that. I mean, that basically creates like germination out in the field, which is what the steep yeah. tanks are supposed to do. And at that point, it's worthless, correct? Yeah, yeah, because we've already started that conversion. It's what we call sprouted grain or pre-harvest sprout. And so it's already started converting our proteins and starches into fermentable sugars. And then the malt house really doesn't have any control over those kernels. And so when you do try to process those types of kernels, they either take up too much water too fast or they don't take up any water. So you have dead kernels and just highly variable malt. So the afternoon thunderstorms in mid to late July and the first of August can be a real bummer on certain varieties of barley. 
do we have sort of an acceptable amount that we look at yearly of like, hey, this is what loss is, is most likely going to look like or something that we've got a threshold that this is kind of in an ideal situation. I mean, clearly in an ideal situation, you want 0% loss, but do we sort of have a threshold that we try to mitigate? Kind of an interesting deal happened in 2014. We had a major rain event across every growing region of barley known to man in North America, literally from Southern Oregon, clear across Idaho, Washington, Montana, the prairies of Canada, everywhere got at minimum six inches of rain, if not more. So the whole barley crop in North America was pre-harvest sprouted. At the time I was at Bush, nobody really knew what to do. And they just kind of started working with that pre-harvested crop too little too late. When I got to Great Western, I found out they were really proactive about it. So they actually started malting that crop immediately. And they developed a threshold. They found that like 0 to 5% sprout worked really well, but it had to be malted almost immediately. So I'm not sure what the number is, but they were able to make a lot of their crop work. And then with the blends that the malt house does, there was zero quality loss from a finished product standpoint, I guess you could say. So it was an anomaly that I hope I don't have to see again in my career. <laughs> yeah, <for> right. sure. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was interesting to come from another company that kind of, I guess, sat on their pockets and waited to see what happened. And then to hear that Great Western was proactive about it and said, hey, we're going to try to make this threshold work. And they did. And what that led to was uh, zero interruption to their customer base. And they were still getting a, a quality product. I think that's probably a good segue into just sort of like briefly touching on on the malt house and the malting facility up there in Pocatello, because that's probably the one you're the most familiar with. So, you know, at the end of it, we get all the stuff off, hopefully no weather problems at all. You know, what does it look like for the transportation from the field to the malt house? I mean, I know the combines come through and they pick up and then what? So yeah, farmers combines come through, harvest the grain, put it on trucks, and then roughly 70% of our contracted acres comes into a leased facility at harvest time. So it'll come into an elevator, it'll be stored. There's a sweat period that the maltsters like to see the raw barley go through, and it just kind of mellows and evens the barley out. So when it does go into the malting process, there's really no hiccups. If you want to see something crazy, come take a temperature on the barley at harvest when it's coming in on the truck. Sometimes that barley is 110 degrees, 120 degrees. And so by putting it into the elevators or silos, there's fans on those silos and we can cool that barley down and get a consistent temperature through it. And then this will help even out the water uptake when it eventually goes into the malt house. So the farmers bring it into an elevator, we cure it is what we call it for a month or two or three months, whatever it needs time to do. And then from there, we start working on logistics into the malt house. So the malt house needs, I don't know, however many different varieties to supply their customer base. And we're in contact with them on a daily basis. And they will say, hey, we need a thousand ton of this variety today and a thousand ton of that variety tomorrow. And we have eight or nine dedicated trucks. And then we also utilize rail cars going into Pocatello. Vancouver is a little bit different animal because of being on the port. We don't do very much trucking in there because they have to have uh, twit cards and stuff to get trucks in. So rail cars are a lot simpler to get into Vancouver. So a lot of their barley goes in on rail. That's how that goes. So 
every day. Yeah. Every day is a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the most interesting things is we're coming off, you know, my second year kind of being here for Harvest and, you know, working with Tevis Vance, who's the plant manager. And I'm sure he'll be glad I got his name on the Internet. Um, oh, yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but working with Tevis to understand, you know, sort of what the blend looks like. You know, you talked about Vancouver versus Pocatello. I think the big distinguishing factor between the two is Pocatello is all base malt. I mean, we process two row, high color pale, pure Idaho, superior pills. Like that is what happens in Pocatello. And so because of that, I feel like that plant, Tevis, works that blend down and out to sort of make it as consistent as possible throughout the year. So is that kind of what you're talking about when you say, you know, hey, the mall house calls you up and says, hey, we need this much of this, this much of this and this much of this today. Is that sort of working within that blend to make sure the specs are always consistent? Yeah. So um, the last thing a brewer wants is inconsistent base malt. So Tevis and the whole team down there at Pocatello are super diligent about giving a customer the exact same base malt every single time. And what spec and analysis you get out of one barley variety type, you won't get out of the next. So if you need or you're looking for X amount of diastatic power versus your alpha amylase, you know, you're going to need a couple different varieties to get the exact spec you want. And that's why there's multiple malting varieties out on the market is so the maltsters can meet those brewer specs. Got it. Awesome. And then for Vancouver, you were talking about, because it does exist on the port, that is where Great Western does any kind of specialty malting that all occurs there, your crystals, your caramel steams, things like that. Is that all sort of coming from that same blend or do they have their own specs that they like to see out there to, to be able to produce um, the specialty malts? It's pretty interesting when it comes to specialty malts, especially in, in roasting houses. Because at the end of the day, roasted malt and caramel steam, you still want the hole attached. Well, it comes back again to, to barley variety types. Some barley variety types, when you roast them, have better hole adherence than other varieties. So then you're limited on the types of varieties you can use for caramel steam or roasted malts. But yeah, the exact same deal. We've got to have a couple different varieties to help meet that spec that brewers want. Okay, well, I think we're getting kind of close to the end of my questions. Is there anything I didn't cover off or question that maybe you want to talk a little bit about? Not anything I can think off the top of my head. Like I said, I think what separates Great Western from some of the others is we're just all passionate about where we're at. I know you're passionate about your sales and being out there with the brewers. I mean, I'm passionate about drinking beer, but yeah, I mean, that works out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) What's your favorite beer? Free. What's your second favorite beer? Cold. (laughs) You're right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. No, I mean, I I think that's a lot of it. It's just the passion um, top to bottom from everybody. It starts with Clay and I getting it in the ground and carries all the way down through our sales managers. So everybody's super passionate about what they do and want to deliver 110% to the customers all the time is what I've found with Great Western. So it's great. Yeah, I mean, I think you really covered it from the stuff that I've seen earlier on when you talked about the fact that this is truly craft all the way from farmers all the way to the brewers, you know, through the malt house into the brew to the final customer. And I think that's a really cool thing to sort of be able to to talk about and see, especially when we get to introduce some of the brewers to the farmers and watch them have that conversation. So. I really appreciate it, Dustin. I'm hopefully we don't get any sort of crazy weather patterns up here in the next uh, month or so. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're getting there. So it's uh, Charlie, our malt house supervisor in Pocatello, he calls it our two weeks. We we work for two weeks out of the year and then run the business <laughs> the rest of the time. So uh, our two weeks is almost up. We're getting yeah. close. <laughs> well, good. You can retire for the other 50 weeks of the year and then uh, and then we can do this again next year. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, right. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Cool, Dustin. Well, I appreciate it.